Welcome back, everybody. It is episode 31 of the Better One Banter podcast here on the uh, non-live stream. Things have gone down. Things have not really worked out for me as far as the uh, copyright strike from last week with the show Al Nihaya. And what YouTube has uh, suddenly decided to declare, it was not a part of the notifications, by the way. It didn't say it anywhere on my copyright strike academy that they forced me to go through the little learning video to be able to make the uh, expiry kind of go out a lot sooner on the copyright strike. Uh, apparently that if you're somebody that is under a thousand subscribers, you don't get the right to live stream at all. If you even fuck up in any minor way, they don't care. They don't have any sympathy whatsoever. So I have to just wait it out till August till I am able to live stream once more. But as always, I'm not going to be uh, trying to edit the show. I'm not going to be trying to do a lot of uh, the pre-recorded magic happen just to make me look better and make the things seem a lot more efficient. I know a lot of you guys uh, feel like that's uh, maybe the best approach, but I don't. I personally feel like it makes me weird. It feels like it makes me take a th like 30 takes, 40 takes until I just uh, I, I act normal. I feel like the live stream is more like stand-up. It's more like a live show. I just get to be myself and you guys get to be uh, yourselves alongside me on the stream and interact with me. So hopefully we'll, we'll try to figure out a solution till then, till I think... I think next week we're going to be having somebody on the show. Uh, I'm not sure. It's going to be an interview. We're going to find out who it is. We're going to see who's uh, able to commit to the podcast. But stay with me. We're going to keep the format as is. No editing. None whatsoever. It's going to be the stream as it is. Uh, we do have a big topic for today. It's going to be uh, space. Space. And why it matters. Why it matters to the Middle East. What our many attempts have been since the 60s at least, with Lebanon and some other countries as well. We're going to focus on Lebanon. We're going to talk about the current uh, GCC state of affairs as far as our space agencies are concerned. Uh, since, I think, 2017 and 2018, a bunch of the uh, Gulf state countries have actually uh, made uh, attempts at, uh, I guess, stimulating the space programs that we used to have uh, that weren't actually very... They were non-existent, at least for Bahrain, uh, as far as I know. Uh, there were some aspects of space command i guess that was uh supposed to be pan arabic pan arabia it was uh, attempted back in the 90s if i'm not mistaken it failed i think uh, because there was a lack of leadership or people couldn't agree on uh, who should lead the project uh today of course it's been a different situation since 2018 we're going to look at the updates of what's happened there with bahrain and some other countries as well saudi uae specifically and go back a little bit in time as i said with lebanon in the 60s but before we get to all of that i just want to say uh, it's going to be a special moment right now we're going to be talking about trump and what's happened with space force space force space force space force space force it's specifically the uh, new branch of the military uh, another arm so you have the army the Air Force, the Navy, and now you have Space Force, which has been a mocked to no end. And that's why I'm going to have this little graphic come up to make us feel all happy. And there we go. There he is, little Trumpy man. He's so happy. He's got the red shirt on from Star Trek. But uh, I feel like that's not accurate because he wouldn't be wearing a red shirt. He's actually lasted more than a couple of episodes. That's a Star Trek joke. Red shirts die. That's their thing. Unless you're Picard or Riker. Then you never die, even when people want you to die. The new shows are terrible. In any case, here's the new insignia for uh, Star, uh, Space Force. It is the branch of the military, as you said, that is going to be in charge of developing uh, the defense mechanisms of the United States government as far as space combat goes, uh, protecting the, uh, I guess, the frontiers, the orbits. Is, it, is, that, is that what we're going to be We can't call it a theater of war. Is it a theater of war? Is it still? I don't know. I need somebody technical to help me out with here. Maybe Mike, somebody else. 
In any case, uh, we do know that Space Force has been now officially unveiled. So I wanted to show you guys a little bit of a clip that I've made uh, about that and about the moment that's happened since last week. I think it was last week at this point uh, with uh, Trump and the unfurling of the flag and Space Force, Space Force official inauguration. Check it out. Here's the clip. Incredible military equipment uh, at a level that nobody's ever seen before. We have no choice. We have to do it with the adversaries we have out there. We have, uh, I call it the super-duper missile. And I heard the other night, 17 times faster than what they have right now. Then you take the fastest missile we have right now. Uh, you've heard Russia has five times, and China's working on five or six times. We have one 17 times, and uh, it's just gotten the go-ahead. 17 times faster, if you can believe that, uh, General. That's something, right? Oh. The word is yes, God. 17 times faster than what we have right now. Fastest in the world by a factor of almost three. So I just want to congratulate everybody and thank everybody. Uh, space is going to be, uh, it's going to be the future. So we're doing something that is such a monumental task. So it's been more than 72 years. The Air Force, I believe, was the last one. And so we have Air Force, and not since the Air Force has anything like this happened. And now we have Space Force added on. <laughs> which Mark will run. What? And with us is Chief Master Sergeant Roger Toberman. And he is, uh, I'd like you to say exactly, because his rank is a very special rank. Uh, tell us about that rank. Yes, sir. I'm the Senior Enlisted Advisor for the United States Space Force. The highest, uh, highest sergeant by far, right? Yes, sir. There's and no at the moment, the only one. So I okay. give counsel to the Secretary that's, that's and to the Chief. Uh, this rank is custom designed. Wow, that's beautiful. Uh, wow, that's it. And he's the only, the only airman that wears that rank, and will be the only airman that wears that rank. He's the senior enlisted. That's leader. fantastic, and I heard tremendous things about you, Roger. Thanks. It's a very important position. Thank you. You're with all these generals, but you know what? <laughs> he's an important guy, right? So why don't we go ahead and do it? Let's do it. Space Force. I love it. So, so good. I, I personally have the theory that uh, it, obviously the guy had something going on. I'm assuming the flag slipped. Maybe you couldn't get a proper uh, uh, grip on it. He's a bit nervous. He was sassing the president for a second, wanted to have like a man on man conversation. He's like, oh, the president is authentic. He's an everyday man. But uh, <laughs> General didn't want him to have a second. <laughs> He's like, just, dude, shut the fuck up and do your job. Show the goddamn insignia. Show your badge, show your rank. You're not here to make chit-chat with the president. And of course, the, the grope, the potential grope, I like to think it was a grope. There was just a weirdness about how Trump was positioning himself. The tilt, the angle of where he was standing uh, in, in, in kind of um, in contrast to Guberman felt weird. Felt, oh, felt like he was just trying to angle to the right butt cheek more than the other. So maybe there was a little bit of a grab. Maybe in Saudi they called Negra. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure what happened, but it seems weird. You guys speculate, make a conspiracy theory out of this if you want to. But I feel like what you can't make a conspiracy theory out of is this insignia. There's nothing here. Uh, I know a lot of people in the Middle East who are into conspiracy theories like to look into the uh, potential 
I guess, Zionist Zionification of symbols and emblems and what their meaning could be. I feel like there is nothing here on this specific Space Force one. I'm looking at it in the monitor. That's why it's uh, I'm tilting off to the left. It's mostly like the, the one from Star Trek, honestly. You can see it on the left. That's Starfleet Command. And it's got the same kind of like uh, or, orbital... I, I want to call it a comet, but I'm assuming there's like a satellite going around the globe that, that's already pissing off flat Earth people. Just that just that alone. Uh, and, and you can tell that it's the same thing to Delta. Now, to be fair, Deltas have been used very frequently in the Air Force. It's It's like Starfleet actually copies... NASA and the Air Force and other kind of symbols anyway. So I'm assuming this is just life imitating fiction. That's fiction imitating life. It's a rabbit hole in itself. But it has triggered uh, an, an awesome moment. I feel like this is all planned because there's some people that have been saying that the idea of Space Force, the TV show, uh, being kind of, it's kind of coinciding with the same time as this inauguration uh, is not a coincidence. It might be a conspiracy theory. But it's not. I feel like it's just a show. If you didn't know the clip within there, you saw Steve Carell, the kind of part that I clipped into the whole thing. It's from the new TV show by Netflix, Space Force. That's right. They've actually made a show in time with the inauguration of the full unfurling of the flag and uh, Space Force now being active with uh, a lot of servicemen actually enlisting in Space Force. So the whole show is... is <laughs> it's making, it's, it's making uh, let's say, a backhanded comment about how the space program might just actually be there for, I guess, press concerns. We don't know. I, I can't tell from the trailer. I would play the trailer, but we both know what's going to happen then. You know, they fucking took down my channel and my live streaming ability over one trailer. I don't know what they're going to do with two copyright strikes. So I'm not going to play that. But I do know for a fact that it's coming out at the end of the month, guys. I'm excited for this one because it's the same guy that made The Office. It's Greg Daniels. The rest of the crew that was in charge of the office. So it looks amazing. It looks good. It looks funny. Steve Carell, as always, uh, uh, pulling off that stoic magic of his in contrast to everything ridiculous that happens around him. So uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's going to be something fresh. The whole idea of Space Force in itself must have gotten so many writers, so many producers hard. They're like, finally, something new, relevant. We, I can actually time it alongside the, uh, and, uh, coincidentally, I guess, it's not coincidental. coincidental. No, it's been timed. It's, it's meant to be released at this point. But yeah, Space Force has been all the rage. And not only is the show going to be uh, happening at the same time, I feel like a lot of people are going to be commenting over the next month uh, over what happens with Space Force because they're trying to take it seriously. And the show is just going to be making fun of them constantly, all the time. And uh, let me get the article for you guys because there's been a lot in the news as far as NASA, space, and even what happened with China. They've had a rocket explode. I'm going to get to that in a bit and how that's actually uh, almost, almost caused serious damage in New York City. Uh, some debris from the, the rocket explosion. But before we do that, I'm going to talk about how the Space Force has managed to get at least more than 2,000 airmen applying to join Space Force. The U.S. Space Force has received thousands of requests since it opened an application window May 1st for eligible active duty personnel to transfer into the service, starting with Air Force personnel. And the quote is saying, as of May 13th, the U.S. Space Force has received more than 2,000 applicants from airmen in both organic and common Air Force specialty codes. I'm going to do the Zap Brannigan version of Space Force. That should, that's who they should get for all the like Space Force advertisements. Join Space Force. 
We're going to throw a thousand bodies at those murderous robots. Every single one of them as we protect America's glory all throughout the ages. They say go on volunteering to transfer to the new service. Space Force spokesperson Lynn Kirby told Military.com on Wednesday that we saw a large number of people who chose to apply on May 4th. Ah, I get it. May the 4th be with you. It's officially the Star Wars Day. So that's... it's. I think the Air Force does this all the time, by the way. They do these cheeky attempts at, at like getting people enlisted that I feel is actually pretty smart on their part because they get to use shows like Stargate, SG-1, some other shows that are all like Air Force-centric to like enlist people. It's like, hey, join the Air Force. We're a bunch of geeks and people in fighter jets and we're pretty fun and look at us. We, we, we're probably going to be the ones that enjoy the aliens. I feel like if there is a conspiracy theory revolving aliens, like if the whole thing about aliens was faked, by the way, Matruk is really happy that I got to aliens at, at what within 15 minutes of the show. But in any case, if I, I could come up with a conspiracy theory on the top of my head that makes sense as far as the aliens being a hoax, as in the U.S. the, the U.S. Air Force made it happen, like they faked the whole thing, they faked the bodies, they faked the, everything, the crash site, Roswell, all of it. If that's the case, I think it's because of recruitment. Because they've done it before, they're doing it right now with Space Force. They just want to make the Air Force seem cool so more and more people join because they don't have the draft anymore. They can't freaking force you to join. They can't do any of that crap. None of the other branches of the military have that. Not really. Because if you join the army, you kind of get fucked. In the same way the Navy, especially if you're a Marine. But I guess Halo, in a lot of ways, Halo was kind of like a, 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 a promotional poster. The poster boy kind of master chief for the uh, Marines. Same with the movie Aliens. But see, they still get fucked anyway. Colonial Marines get fucked in that movie. So Air Force, I feel like, gets better recruitment numbers. They even say in this article that they're limiting the amount of people that joined from the Navy and the Army. And specifically are targeting people from the Air Force. Makes more sense, I guess. Guardsmen and reservists who are already executing space missions and currently aligned with the Space Force will continue supporting it. Officials are weighing how best to incorporate them. A Space Force Reserve component is still being looked at. Do do do. The process so far has targeted airmen who are already executing missions needed in Space Force. Dempson said on Tuesday. Well, that's what's happening with Space Force. What do you guys think? Leave a comment. Let me know how you feel about the whole thing. Do you feel like we need this Space Force? Is everybody going to militarize from now on? They used to have that project Star Wars in the, the 1980s, which is about uh, basically putting nuclear warheads in space. The whole project, I think, was started by Reagan, if I was not mistaken. It was about just basically launching. They made it seem so amazing, like over the top. Like, hey, look, it's Star Wars. Did it do capitalizing on Hollywood again. That's what I'm saying. I feel like it's the other way around. Everybody thinks that the army or whatever, the, the Air Force uses propaganda in Hollywood to make their shit cool. Or they're the one putting out. They're the ones putting out the message. I just feel like they go shit. People like Star Wars. Let's make a program. Call it Star Wars. Makes sense. I'm assuming that's how Guberman talks. But yeah, Star Wars was a program with the nukes from space, not launched from the ground. Nukes from space. It was all part of the arms race. So uh, there's been a lot of stuff as far as 2020 goes, and I feel like this is a new arms race, but maybe not an arms race. More like a merchant race, the goods race. 
Because I feel like a lot of the countries involved right now that are suddenly interested in, in space agencies, kind of like the, the Gulf, as I mentioned earlier on, we're going to be talking about that later. Uh, Gulf countries have all developed their own space agencies, Saudi, Bahrain, UAE, a bunch of others as well, have uh, all been kind of trying to get their own space agencies going. Simpler things, I guess, starting off points. But the idea being that now technology has become more feasible, more accessible for people. And the fact that there's going to be a lot of commercial space travel, Elon Musk, SpaceX, all the stuff that's happening with that. We've talked to that, about that before and how they're commercializing the whole thing, privatizing the whole thing, the delivery mechanisms for getting stuff into the International Space Station, uh, future plans of colonizing Mars. But I think the one that is you know, the most important that they're burying the lead on, the one that's made this whole thing financially feasible as far as the future goes, is the fact that as technology ramps up, guys, as our electronics get more and more complex, as precious metals and minerals start to get rarer and rarer because that's why they're precious, you know, palladium, zinc, all this other crap, as our cell phones need them and we grow with the economies we have right now, as long as Coronachon doesn't fuck everything, as, as, as much as we need those phones, we're going to be running out of that stuff. That's why China is moving into Africa. That's why China is making sure to keep all of Africa in debt for multiple reasons, but one of them being the uh, extraction of precious minerals and metals and them attempting to get those minerals and metals out of every economy possible, any untapped resource. I remember in uh, scrap metal recycling, that was one of the things that you'd see a bunch of uh, people in our, my family, uh, my dad specifically started his whole business in scrap metal recycling. When I was doing research into it, you would see Koreans and Chinese basically going crazy over precious metals. They try to buy it out of every market, every economy possible just because that's exactly what they need to make sure the uh, computers, the cell phones, everything that we love, that we find dear, think Foxconn and everybody that makes your goddamn technology, they need that shit. They need it bad. And going back to what I was starting this whole freaking tangent off of, those asteroids that exist in space would be the number one concern for any company that wants to do space travel, that wants to basically part, be part of the logistics network, that supply chain of mining asteroids in the future. They've mentioned it multiple times. Bezos, Elon Musk, everybody that's a tech giant has basically in one form or another, at one point or another, emphasized the importance of uh, the future economies and how mining asteroids will be the way of the future. Because the, just guess what? That shit that we find rare on Earth exists in tons i think the technical term is fuck tons of palladium take all this other crap that we need all of it fuck tons of it you remember that one article that came out years ago with like uh i, I remember men were passing it around on, uh, on on valentine's day this giant like asteroid whatever the frick it was it was um made completely of diamonds like just diamonds that's it that's how how, how not rare it is when I guess put into the certain like the right conditions you could find just diamonds out there like in metric fuck tons as I said so uh, if we can actually access some of the material that exists out there in space you can get some of those precious metals some unknown metals as well unknown components unknown chemistry all going on at the same time then we take the next evolutionary jump why is my cell phone making beepy noises god damn it We're in the middle of the recording I want to say stream but YouTube's fucked us. Right. So uh, that is one of the many things that's happening recently. We're going to cover the other thing, which is the China event, the rocket crash. 
So uh, what's happened is basically China had a rocket launch. I'm going to read some, some of the article right now. Chunks of China's powerful rocket fall back to Earth, narrowly missing in New York City. The large rocket uh, stage of China's Long March 5B has re-entered Earth's atmosphere and fallen back to Earth after a successful launch on May 5th. The almost 20-ton rocket stage is the largest uncontrolled object to fall from low Earth orbit since the Soviet space station Salyut 7's unguided re-entry in 1991. And also, the Mir space station, we're not forgetting that one, but that was not uncontrolled, that was a controlled re-entry that crashed it over Fiji. It was a whole thing, you know, the Russian space station. It was kind of like the, the precursor to the ISS, the International Space Station. Anyway, the large core stage of China's Long March 5B rocket re-entered Earth's atmosphere and plummeted out of control to the surface earlier in the week at 100 feet long and 16 feet wide. It's the largest piece of space junk to fall uncontrolled from low Earth orbit in almost 30 years. Basically, it blew up. A lot of debris, a lot of shit just rained from the skies, you know, fiery death. And they couldn't, they were so worried that it was going to fall on New York City because apparently if it had happened 15 minutes earlier, it would have hit New York. Now imagine what those headlines would have been. First, you have Trump all the time deflecting everything Corona related to China. There are actual lawsuits from other countries, including Australia and in many places around the world that want to blame China for Corona Chan. And I want to say that I don't feel the the least bit sympathy towards China and their aggressive expansionist policies. As justified as they might be, they're just doing the same thing every other empire has done anyway. So I'm not going to judge them on that. But I will say, I don't feel sorry for you. Um, But yeah, had that happened, you can imagine how the US would have reacted. It would have been instant like conspiracy theory nonsense on Fox News. It would have been everybody basically jumping on the bandwagon of let's, let's, let's fuck the Chinese. They intentionally dropped their space station rocket bullshit on our heads with fiery brimstone from the heavens, and we must take them down. (laughs) Goodbye, China and Corona Chan. That would have been probably the headline. (laughs) So it's not a a good, it's not a good thing, obviously, (laughs) but we're, we're, we're thankful that it didn't fall there. That apparently the majority of it was uh, in the water, but a bunch of it, pieces of the rocket may have been strewn, they say, across parts of Cote d'Ivory, which is the Ivory Coast, the country in West Africa, if I'm not mistaken, if I know my geography, which I feel like I don't. But uh, the heavy lift rocket, which was carrying China's prototype crew capsule, successfully launched from Wing Cheng Launch Center on Hainan Island off the country's southern coast. Typically, rockets have a a first stage that propels them, they say, from the first few minutes after launch, whilst the second stage helps the payload reach orbit. But Long March 5B was different. You see, this was where the Chinese are trying to be different for the first time and not copy other people's shit. They said the rocket had a single core stage and four boosters that propelled it off the launch pad. The speed and angle of the rocket's decaying orbit made it difficult to track. Predictions spanned a range of sites from New York City to New Zealand, According to Space Pace Flight Now, uh, initial reports claim the spacecraft had plummeted into the ocean off Africa's west coast. Ah, I was right. Uh, now, two villages in Cote d'Ivory have uh, reported finding what they believe to be debris from the fallen rocket stage. According to images posted to social media and reported in the French language news organization Afrique Soir, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. 
Jonathan McDowell, an astronomer at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, tweeted the location of one fallen object. I have this one. I have a picture of this one. I'm going to get it for you guys right now. That's a special one. So it's a tweet from this guy who was uh, basically tracking. I looked at his Twitter account, and he 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 tracks a lot of the stuff that China China puts out there in space. Uh, he's I, I don't want to say critical, but I feel like concerned. All right, uh, reports of a 12 meter long he says object crashing into the village of Mahonunu in Cote d'Ivory. Mahonunu in Cote d'Ivory is directly on the CZB5B reentry track. Uh, 2,100 kilometers downrange from the space track reentry location. Possible that part of the stage could have sliced through the atmosphere. So I'm assuming that's a giant pipe. I, th I think it, it looks like a giant piece of... I don't know if this is an actual photo from the, the debris. It doesn't look like anything is destroyed, though. Like It doesn't look like there's any like damage around it. There's nothing, no dirt in the air. Or you know how, like, when you have like something crash land in the movies, you see like this huge, I know I said movies, but still I'm assuming something is true about transformers, but yeah, the, the, the earth is supposed to be moved around in some sense. doesn't look like this is an impact of any kind. It just seems like a photo of people hanging around or maybe they're just looking for it. Like look at the guy with the right. He's, he's holding his, his flash, his camera, but with, with the smartphone with a flash on. So he's looking for shit. All right. He goes on to say whether there's no official word on whether these pieces of debris are actually parts of the fallen rocket stage. It looks more and more likely. Yeah, it doesn't mean it doesn't feel like it'd be made up. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, they have more photos of stuff and a video, but it's not about the crashes. I think it's about a test rocket, so I couldn't put it up anyway. But they say in addition to smashing into the ground with unbelievable force, these boosters often still have traces of the toxic propellant hydrazine in them. And as tempting as it is, if one falls into your yard, don't try to get a close look. Oh my god. How fucked up is that? That you not only is Africa suffering from years of conflict, years of uh, you know backlash from colonialism, from everything else that's happened there, troubled economies, Chinese expansionism. Now the Chinese are just dumping hydrazine in their backyard. Toxic as it is. So there you go. That's the, the perils of space flight and how it doesn't seem to matter for the Chinese or anybody else in the West if something blows up, falls from the sky or, you know, basically ends up erupting as you saw Steve Carell on the show Space Force when that clip, he just sees something blow up in midair. That uh, tells you that us as Arabs shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. It's okay. The rest of the world seems to bullshit their way through it. Why can't we? That's one way to look at it, right? In any case... Uh, there's been some other updates as well. You can see for some of the programs in, uh, what is it? This is the space sail or NASA's new testing of uh, a solar sail. So this is a concept from Arthur C. Clarke, who's a huge, huge sci-fi author. Uh, he had, I think, a book called Sunjammer, if I'm not mistaken, which is what this thing is based off of. And the idea behind it is the sail unfurls. If you've seen the movie Alien Covenant uh, or you, you have not because it's garbage. In any case, doesn't matter. The opening scene has James Franco dying instantly and the sail going up. So in this sail, what happens is not it doesn't just collect, you know, the solar, I guess, rays to power the whole thing. But what it does is as you're in space where there's, you know, no gravity and it's just you in the vacuum of space, 
small, tiny beams of light are actually made up of what's known as photons, right? Photons impact the sail, and as the sail is impacted, it causes more and more momentum to build up. So a lot of energy actually keeps things moving forward. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a concept based on it that just makes it go really, really fast over time as it accumulates. So NASA's testing this whole thing out. It's a huge deal. There's a fuck ton of shit going on as far as space exploration goes in 2020. Uh, new technologies being tested. With this one, I think they're just testing the unfurling and furling of the whole thing, the whole system of raising the mast, bring it back down, etc., and how it all actually stores into a very tiny box, which is really impressive. I wish there was more coverage of this kind of stuff in the Middle East, but apparently there isn't because we don't give a shit. But why we should give a shit is because that's our shtick. We did the whole sailing thing. We did it better than most people, and we actually were really good at it. You know, I feel like this is an opportunity for us, like every other topic I've brought up on the show. Well, Middle Easterners should look at the future and realize, hey, just because all these coincidences are happening doesn't mean it's a conspiracy theory. It means that everybody's kind of hunting for the same opportunity. Everybody's trying to get there first. And instead of just trying to figure out how we're being fucked over, maybe we should figure out how to get there too. And I say this because we have a long history, a tradition, if you may, of actually caring about trade so if you look at the arab world even back in roman times we traded all kinds of crap we traded crap to the point that you would call us an rpg race you know how every race kind of has some unique attribute like heat resistance cold resistance if you're a nord i guess it's norwegians in skyrim or any other kind of rpg race has some kind of specialty trait associated with them where ours would be most likely finding shit and selling it to you that's that's our trait Okay, we've since the dawn of time, since the dawn of civilization, the best thing we've been good at is not being conquered initially until we fucked that one up and finding shit and selling it to you. So it happened back in the Roman times with frankincense and myrrh. So uh, Bukhur and all that other stuff that we use today, incense, etc. That stuff was only available in uh, East Africa. So places like Ethiopia uh Mauritania, Mauritania etc etc and of course as we all know as Middle Easterners in Yemen Oman etc and we had that whole route going from Yemen Oman and meeting close to Africa at the point you know the crossing point and going all the way north across the western part of Saudi Arabia or at the time ancient Arabia and moving all the way up to Roman territory and after doing that what happened is we were we were basically rich Nabataeans people Nabataean we lived in that part of, uh, let's say, Jordan and, and the rest of like Iraq, Jordan, etc., Sham area. And we got insanely rich because guess what? The Romans did fucking nothing but value frankincense and myrrh and that stuff because they used it in temples and ceremonies and practices, all kinds of stuff. You know, that stuff was gold. It was the oil economy of its day. And we made the most money out of it. Can you see a theme here? Well, we tend to extract shit from the ground, from other resources, and just sell it to white people. That's what we're good at. That's what we should be continuing to be good at and try to actually be ahead of everybody else. Because not only did we do it for frankincense and myrrh, uh, it was so effective in the Bible. You can see it. And when, when the wise men reach, uh, what was it, the uh, nativity scene? And it's all about, you know, what, what have you brought for baby Jesus? And it's frankincense and myrrh. Where did you get it from? Oh, I found it myself. They don't tell you that they found it from the Arab. He sold it to him. That's what, well, how they got it. They didn't travel. They didn't follow a star. We sold them that shit. So what I'm saying is continue selling stuff because we did it consistently. Even later on, we did it with the spice trade. 
there was one point, I think, with Ptolemy before even the Roman Empire, where uh, this is post-Alexander the Great, where they needed African uh, elephants and Asian elephants because the Persian Empire is the Seleucid or whatever they, they were called, but basically Persian, all right? Ancient Persia. They had access to the Indian elephants and the northern elephants from Africa, like from Carthage and that stuff, they didn't want to be sold to the Romans. The Carthaginians were like, fuck off, Romans. And we decided, hey, you know, this this route. And Ptolemy and the rest of the people from uh, Alexandria and Egypt and that empire post-Alexander uh, the Great were like, we need to get ourselves some elephants. And they found out and figured out through the many people they came in contact with, including Indians and Arabs and others, that there's a pathway the, the ancient Silk Road, but at the time it was used mostly during the waters. So it was a waterway, less of a caravan trail. And it went all the way down the Red Sea to the monsoon season that would come from Oman and other places in the south and take them to India. So they would circumvent the Persian Empire and get whatever they needed and distribute that trade back into the Roman Empire, whatever it is that came later on, the Ptolemaic Empire, etc., etc., etc. My timeline's off, but you get the freaking point. Okay, we sell shit. That's what we do. And this is our opportunity to get to those freaking asteroids and sell more shit. And yet, we're behind. And yet, we let everybody else do the work. And I'm hoping this is the strategy. The strategy is that we're going to let them do the work. We're going to let the white people invest all the money. We're going to let the Chinese people invest all the money. And then once they figure out the hard shit, then we just take it. We buy it. Because we have money from what's left of our oil industry. And we basically just use that to invest in the whole infrastructure needed to get to space. The problem with that plan, I feel, is that in the olden times, we had an advantage where they'd have to come through our territory for us to actually use any technology that we'd find and therefore be the hub that bridges them to the, the resources, right? They won't need us in the future. We are slowly getting left behind. And I, it scares the living shit out of me because we have a bunch of PR programs that are meant to actually instill some kind of confidence in our future. And I'm not saying everything's going to hell, by the way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of time for us to actually get shit done right. But we have to be honest about what we need to do to be able to do that. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that's out there right now is just PR stuff. You know, it's no different than Space Force. Maybe Space Force is going to start off as a PR program and as a joke for Netflix to freaking have fun with. But eventually, I feel like it's going to be actually of some use. It's like investing in your future just in case. And I don't feel like that's what's happening with us because there's no real infrastructure going on into our space agencies. So this takes me to that next point. Right. I wanted to cover the X-37B Space Force project as well. That's a secret rocket, a, space, a spaceship that's going out by the military that nobody knows what the fuck it's doing. I'll just show you the picture of it before we move on, just so you can just say that I did it. Because I promoted it on the Instagram, but we're short on time and I don't want to waste it. So that is the rocket. Uh, it's been the mysterious rocket currently. Uh, it's doing missions. It's going to be doing one of its missions, I, I guess, right now with uh, the whole Space Force thing. Nobody knows what it's about. Maybe it's out there to fight a secret war with them aliens. Maybe it's the lizard people finally going back home. And they can, be, they can stop all their Zionist ways and finally leave us alone. I don't know. Nobody knows what it's about. We're going to find out, I guess, in the next couple of months as things ramp up because 2020 has been amazing so far. Yay, Corona-chan! Right, so let me tell you a little story. 
is a story from my childhood, right? So this building, I used to go to it all the time or pass by it. It's a khabar. So if you don't know this, as a kid, you know, I had family on both sides of the causeway. In Bahrain from my mom's side and mostly from my dad's on the Khobar side. Uh, but the Dosiri family has been, you know, all over the place. And for me as a kid growing up in, in Khobar and, and seeing the differences between all these different cultures and people that I met from, you know, Bahrain and also other places in Saudi, Americans, etc. There was a, a lot of discover, discovery going on in my younger times. And in this discovery, I remember one thing stood out that was the weirdest of all. Every time I passed by this building... I would notice like a weird statue, a monument. And this is this is what I now think back to as what sparked the initial fascination I had with space. It was a statue that today has been relocated, if I'm not mistaken, to somewhere in the Corniche. Uh, but it was a special one to everybody. And it was this one. All right. So this is the Space Shuttle Discovery. And what this was was a monument to the first Saudi astronaut to go to space. It was uh, Prince Sultan bin Salman, who was the stepbrother of the, the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And he was the first Khaliji to go to space. It was a huge deal. It was the thing back in the 80s to do. And he was one of the first people to do it before anybody, like before it started getting really commercialized by people going up through the Russian system, the Russian cosmonaut system, whatever it's called, Roscos. Uh, but this was a different one. This was, you know, going up on discovery. It was going up on the whole you know, campaign of being there with the Americans, him growing up having seen the actual moon landings, you know, maybe they're not real, maybe they are, I don't know, I feel like they're real. In any case, he went and he felt like he was fulfilling a dream. He was fulfilling everything that he wanted to do uh, that his younger self had inspired to. And he did it for a lot of people, including uh, doing stuff like reading the whole Quran in space and being one of the first people to actually read it in space. Uh, it was a, a cultural achievement. But it didn't spark any innovation after that, okay? It was uh, more of a, a symbol and a simplistic PR move that means a lot and maybe helps some people dream, which is what I want to get to, is that we've done a lot of sparking of dreams in the Middle East. We've made sure that people go out there and actually want to invest in something that is bigger than ourselves, and they've done it. There are a lot of people that I've met that have done it. Uh, I know a one girl that I met when I was in Miami in the States and I didn't know who she was at the time and I didn't know she was a big deal. Uh, she's this girl right here. So what's her story? Well, she actually works for NASA. She's a rocket scientist. And at the time she was actually a diver when I first met her, as in she, she did rocket science. I just didn't know that she did. And she was the only Saudi that I met at the time. I was like, oh, maybe another friend. Maybe we can actually have fun. Her name is Bashar. Mishal Shimri, and uh, surprisingly, more, more people need to know about her, and yet they don't. Mishal was the first Saudi woman to join NASA. Uh, Mishal was an air, she is, sorry, not was, she is an aerospace engineer and the CEO of her own company, Mishal, with two A's, uh, aerospace, and the first Saudi woman to join NASA. Well, what does her job entail, says the article, you may wonder? Well, it consists of sending satellites into orbit using cost-effective space access vehicles known as M-Rocket series. And at the time when I met her and we were scuba diving, she'd explain this after the fact. And I was like, holy shit, what are you doing here? And I remember at the time that it was like, it was more of a question of that this is where, where all the industry was. In Florida, Cape Canaveral, you had everything out there as far as NASA goes and all the companies. So, you know, VAE Systems and um, what is there, Raytheon, uh, Boeing, etc. All the air, aircraft engineer, aerodynamic type companies, uh, all those engineering, you know, 
company. Uh, like I'm, I'm messing up the terminology. Don't fuck with me, Matruk, all right? In any case, she did this stuff. She was really interesting. Uh, she was somebody that was talking about how her journey through it was unusual, unorthodox. It was difficult for her growing up. Uh, it was difficult justifying this life to herself and to her family. But for her, the fascination, she said, started when uh, she was gazing at the stars. Na'neza Desert. And since then, her focus has been to become an aerospace engineer and contribute to the development of space vehicles and rockets. She went on to graduate magna cum laude from Florida Institute of Technology with two bachelors of science degrees in aerospace engineering and applied mathematics in 2006 and a master of science degree in aerospace engineering in 2007. Just to let you know, at the time, I felt like a complete idiot. I felt useless. I was doing nothing in my life besides playing World of Warcraft. And trying to lose weight in Miami going out. This is me trying to be like adventurous and exploring at the time. I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to live abroad, do all this other stuff to get out of my shell. And then I meet somebody that got out of their shell and actually accomplished more in their life than I've ever done. You know, maybe three three lifetimes worth of achievements. So she she's done a lot. And since then, she's not only had her, uh, what is it, aerospace engineering, applied mathematics 2006. She has a master of science degree in aerospace engineering in 2007. In her studies, she's focused on experimental analytical aerodynamics, rocket design, and nuclear thermal propulsion. In 2015, she also won the award for Inspirational Woman of the Year at the Arab Women's Awards. So she's got a ton of accomplishments. And you might ask, why are you bringing this up, Khalid? Why are you making us feel bad? <laughs> why are you making yourself feel bad? You've done jack shit and neither have we. Uh, it's good on her. She's out there. But this sounds like one of those, uh, you know, female PR woman's first, the future is feminine, the force is feminine, whatever you want to call it type uh, articles that you're reading from. And I want to say that, that that's not the point I'm making here. The point I'm making here is I've met a bunch of people that were really good at what they do. They're smart. Their brains are considered natural resources. So there's things that we, they are oil. They're, they are things that we should value as much as we value oil. And sadly enough, every time we've sparked that creativity, we've sparked that innovation through our own PR programs that I've mentioned, we anybody that actually goes through it and says, you know what, I'm going to look at that space shuttle with Prince Sultan and Salman, and I'm going to actually go into, you know, air, aircraft engineering or, you know, whatever, what is it, rocket design, rocket size, whatever you want to call it. If they go through it, there's not much incentive for them to stay here culturally they might experience something different scientifically they're not intrigued they're not challenged they don't get the budgets they don't get the research grants and they don't get to work with the smartest and brightest people in the whole world and that's difficult bro like if you if you think about it i'm i'm somebody that feels already a little bit ostracized and out there not really ostracized but let's say isolated from most people just because of the fact that i feel weird i feel different all of us go through this shit you know, you feel like you're not part of necessarily the mainstream society that's out there. You might feel isolated because you're the artsy creative type and you like to draw, I guess, cat girls, whatever you're into. You might feel like you're the only one that listens to podcasts. You might feel like you're the only one that paints, I don't know, pictures of Hitler in tuxedos. The, the point I'm making is that you feel weird. You feel different. And yet we still find our own communities. So how would they feel? They already feel like they're not only just challenged, but they have to read studies and, and, and these analyses and discussions and forums and world events that happen all in other countries. And sure, it's a, there's amount of nationalism and pride that would say, you know what, I want to stay in my country and do this. Uh, I think it was Hazza al-Masuri was a recent astronaut that went up into space. Uh, he was the, the, the latest 
kind of uh, uh, endeavor that's gone up from a GCC country. He's gone up uh, based on a program launched by the UAE and their space program. But they didn't launch it themselves, obviously. He's, he trained. He was given the opportunity to go up there. He uh, went up there with the Russian cosmonaut program, if I'm not mistaken. And he was an inspiration to a lot of people. A great thing to put on a magazine. A great thing to put on a newspaper. A great thing to sell those, to, to show us stability and, and creativity and inspire us for bigger and better things in the future. The problem is, the inspiration needs follow-through. And even if he goes up there, what is the end game for them? They need to feel like they're bar- part of a bigger community that's actually doing real work. And the same thing applies to all the creative people I was talking about in, last, in the last couple of episodes. If you're a filmmaker, if you're anything else, every single time I've seen anybody that's into anything that's not really being met in the, in the Middle East, we always ask the question. People are bitching all the time. Like, why don't we have the mines? Why don't we have the industry? Why don't we have the technology? Why don't we have the movies? Why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? And as much as I want to stay positive about the whole thing, I feel like the reality is, is we don't have it because other people are poaching them. Why would they stay here? Like I said, you might love your country. You definitely, Hazar loves his country. A lot of people love their countries. But if you want a future, if you want, these people are competitive. The only reason they would be out there is because they are the most competitive people that exist. They want to be the best. They want to be the brightest. They want to prove themselves. And you know what happens to people that prove themselves or put themselves in through all that effort, through all that hardship, and then feel like, you know, there's nothing more. It's, it's like, okay, I made some news. I gave you guys the inspiration. I've gone up there and I've done this. What's happening now? I could teach young minds, but I'm not re- really getting the resources and the funding and the budget for anything substantial. So what, what is my purpose? Is it just to look good? That's what breaks my fucking heart, man. Because like, if you look at the shit with Corona, right? What, what bothers me the most about Corona is the fact that we're all going to survive. All right. This is not as big a deal as we might have thought. And obviously the economy is going to be into some kind of recession. It might even bounce back just as strong as it was. But the thing I know that's always going to suffer in every kind of mini recession, big recession, whatever it might be, is arts, sciences, entertainment, Whatever it is you want to look at that isn't really prioritized, you know, we're not really prioritized over banking and finance and marketing and everything else that goes into the world of commercial industry or even just, you know, manufacturing in general. We're not going to be those people. We're not even, you know, we're not up to par to, to the importance and priority that's given to the service industry because all those industries are more important than us. They hire people. They keep people fed. They make sure that families can survive. Yeah, fuck us. I'm not saying that we should, whiny little bitches, you know, with your YouTube channels, you didn't do jack shit. I studied engineering, okay? I got a job at Bobco. That's what one of you is saying. I did this, I did this, I did this. You chose the career path that you're in, you little grubby podcaster. Yes, I did. And that's why I'm okay with it. But how the fuck are you going to fault them? They're smarter than you and me. They put in just as much work as you have. They have put in more. Because the field that they're in doesn't necessarily reward you that much. You know, they could just take the easy out. They could go and work with, a, you know, Boeing or some, some, some other kind of industry. But they've decided to go into the harder route. And guess what? Whenever anybody has said, oh, do you remember the golden days of the Arab empires? The golden days of Islam? 
Well, we were at the height of our technological investment or involvement and innovation, whatever you want to call it, man. We, what we did is that we were a bastion, a hub. We attracted all these people from all parts of the world, from India, from, you know, the, the Far East, from Russia, from anywhere that was kind of like the, the, the boundaries of where civilization was. And we told them, hey, do you want to do math? Do you want to do sciences? Do you want to do philosophy? Do you want to do all this stuff, medicine? Come here. This is where we're going to value you. This is where it's going to happen. And the sad part is, is that sometimes it doesn't happen because of just good intentions. It can. You have leaders that are inspired. You have kings and, and, and presidents and ministers that have actually, you know, just out of their visionary inspiration have managed to create things out of nothing and told you, go ahead, do this because I feel like it's the best thing for our people. But those people are rare and you can't rely on them. You can't rely on them existing is what I mean. So what you need is an actual political investment in the process. People who are able to see the long-term value of this shit. And if they can't, if you don't see how that bounces back and gives you an advantage that makes you competitive, that in the long run secures something as vital, as booming to your economy as oil or frankincense or myrrh, then you're kidding yourself. Because these like bubbly economies that we're in, real estate, whatever else you're into, even fucking YouTube, this shit just blows up. It's gone. It comes and it goes. It's like the tides. But people that develop something out of nothing, like imagine the first country that's going to develop massive AI or super intelligence or the first country that develops a fusion reactor. That shit, you, you, okay, maybe you, the second country, the third one, would also benefit. But still, the guys that have the brains behind the science are going to win out every single time. Why do you think the goddamn US managed to get all those Nazi scientists over? Because they wanted to win that bidding war against Russia. They were like, you can't let them have it. We need all these brains. They treat those brains no differently than they treat missiles, technology that's like you know, based on military warfare, or they don't, they don't treat them any different than a resource like oil, natural gas, whatever you got, their brain technology, brain resources, it matters. And unfortunately, we don't put the effort in to actually keep people like that. And that, that takes me to the next part, which is uh, my criticism of our current space programs. So we're on to the last few topics, guys. The one that uh, you're probably going to be asking yourself is what's happened since 2018? I told you the UAE has managed to do a lot for as far as training programs go, uh, launching Hazan Mansouri and others, I guess, that were uh, viable for the program into space. That doesn't mean that we've developed our own launch pad. Like, uh, there's been a few interviews out there that have kind of misled people into thinking we're developing our own rockets, but that's not the case. What we're doing is kind of getting the, um, the research done to educate people and students and engineers and future scientists into what these programs mean and, and how we can create and engender and inspire the next generation of scientists and, and, and educators to, to be able to take advantage of that. So you see this interview is from Inside Edition. It was on BTV. It was, it was a good one. I, I watched the most, most of it. I say it was Sara Break and the gentleman here on the show. I can't remember his name. Let me get the article for you guys. Uh, but he was talking about how the whole industry in itself needed to be sparked by just starting out the education, the understanding, and giving the kids a technical understanding of what they need to do. So 
There's it. That's the tag. Sara Break discusses with Dr. Mohammed Al Uthman, member of the board of directors of the National Space Agency, the ambitions of the Kingdom of Bahrain to develop its space program and technologies. What does that mean? Well, it means it wants to get some uh, initial satellites in orbit. So when Sara interviewed him, she kind of misunderstood the thing. She kept saying spacecraft. I think what she thought was that the program has the intention of developing a space program that develops and creates a spacecraft or launches a rocket into space. But that's not the intention. The intention is on the very minimum is to just have a basic understanding of the kind of technology that would create a small satellite, something like a micro satellite, just basically something that goes up there, does some sensor scans, maybe some uh, you know GPS tracking software, whatever it is that's up there that will be able to scan some images and be of some value to people that track data on the ground. So really, as far as space programs go, it's pretty basic. But what I liked is that he was very honest about the fact that the, the, the program that they had, which is developing, developing a qubit satellite, it's called a qubit, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, a CubeSat. A CubeSat, or it's a Cube satellite, which is a very tiny satellite, like a box with a ton of sensors on it. Developing those was not going to be part of a kit. So they don't just buy a kit. And this is what a lot of countries have done. They buy these ready-made kits, right, from other countries, other space programs and manufacturers, and they build it like an assembly, like fucking Ikea, right? And I can take, you know, a piece of furniture from Ikea and say, you know what, we have industry in Bahrain. And I, I just bought a bunch of IKEA couches. I put them together and then I sold it to people. That's not really manufacturing. That's assembly. But the lines are blurred here, right? So he was going on to say that they don't want to just do that. They don't want to just buy one of these kits, put them together and say, hey, we have a space program. No, they want to actually be able to send a, a satellite to space after understanding the components and the mechanisms, everything that goes with it. Now, you can notice from my tone that I'm saying a lot of good things at first because... <laughs> I'm going to do a little bit of harsh criticism right now. It's just the, the idea that I don't, I don't think they're, uh, they, they've been keeping their promise. This is a promise that was put out by 2018. And they said by two years, within the next two years, they'd be launching their first CubeSat. And I don't, I don't think it was Corona-chan that cut budgets for the, for the group. Uh, I've followed their Instagram. I've seen some of the stuff they put out there. Shout out to Iyad for actually helping me out with uh, getting this uh, story out here. Uh, but they've actually not done much besides run a bunch of workshops, some hackathons, some forums and conferences and committees, and they look good for the Instagram pictures. But as always, is it just a PR stunt? Is it just something that looks impressive to say, hey, you know, we're shaping minds, we're molding futures, we're getting them inspired, but are we getting them to space? If we inspire or tell somebody, hey, you know what, go out there, be the brains and the brawn, are we actually giving them something to work with? Why are we not launching small baby rockets? We can do that. Why is that not a possibility? Is it just because of a danger, a health risk, a, a military risk, whatever it might be, a security risk? Maybe they need more. So you ask me if they haven't launched rockets, what have they launched? Well, the NSSA has launched their website. That's what they've done so far. Besides all the workshops, I'm giving them credit for that, the conferences, the committees, the photo ops, the little programs to inspire kids to understand the technology and the components. But they've not launched nothing but a website. This is their website. When was it launched? At the start of 2020. So two years later, they've managed to do something that my wife has been working on for a week and she's about to launch her website. 
So I'm not sure what's going on there. Follow them at nssa.gov.bh and take some interest. Maybe if you showed some interest, they'd get their shit together. I don't know. But it just feels like it's it's another one of these PR stunts. So hopefully they actually, you know, manage to, to take us to the next step. I have faith. I feel like they understand what needs to be done. They just don't know how to execute it. And maybe if we, not that they don't know, but they're not given the chance to. Like a lot of times, I, like, like everything I've brought up about whether it's Bahrain or the rest of the Arab world, our number one issue is that we want to hear some good news. We want to hear like, you know, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And then just don't ask questions about what happens as a follow-up. But, but we've been doing that for the last 50 years. This, this has to be at some point where we ask the question, why is it not happening? And I think the reason is, is because we never want to hear the criticism. It's not that, you know, they wouldn't tell us. If I talk to him face-to-face, -face, or anybody face-to-face, -face, you know this, I know this, they would tell you instantly, what is the issue with the process? What's the bureaucracy? Where is the lack of faith? Where is the lack of budgeting? How does it survive if, for example, we go through an economic recession? Stuff that's real. But that doesn't get put out there. And therefore, you, the, the viewer, the listener, the person that's out there on the street, the everyday person, you don't get invested in the topic and therefore you don't get to make decisions about it. Not because nobody wants you to have the decisions, but because they don't want you to, to, to feel bummed out. They don't want you to think that they failed and they don't want to receive any criticism that kind of mentions that something bad has gone on. So maybe if we took a little bit more interest in them, maybe if we kind of inspired them to be honest, to be creative, to be critical, not just all the good things, but also kind of a little bit of the bad by just having a little bit of honest criticism, telling us what's going on, what we need to do, the truth. It's not that harsh. It's not that embarrassing. We should be welcoming people, telling them, hey, you know what? This channel, this YouTube channel is crap. Tell me it's crap. Go ahead, say, you know what? You need to fix your audio. You need to do this. You need to actually improve on this. Your delivery on this is taking forever. And you know what? If I asked you for criticism, I deserve to hear whatever I hear. And from what I get from you guys, I will take and I'll try to better it. Some of the advice you're going to give me is not going to be applicable because you don't know the circumstances that I'm in. But that's not my job to stop you from telling me because maybe three out of 10 will actually spot something that I didn't realize that could change. And I feel like that's what's missing. The feedback loop. They don't get the information back. They don't know how invested you are. They don't know how interested you are. And therefore, they run themselves like a jobs program and just make sure they're just trucking along. But I don't feel like there's an end goal. And I feel like this, this has all been hijacked because of the fact that people can't just be you know, what they were back in the day when they just fucking do shit. Whatever happens, happens. Like I said, this is the future for us. In the Arab world, we have to kind of accept it and re realize what our past has been as well. So, on the last uh, subject about the past, as Arabs and people that have taken risks, and like I said, they've been trading everything across the world, this is our time to, to redeem ourselves and go into the, uh, the, I, the I guess, the, the, the time periods that people didn't realize existed. There was a time in the 1960s, which I feel like some of our leaders and people in charge understand was when the time we were hopeful and we wanted to push for more. We wanted more. And we were a bit, we had a little bit more risk-taking happening in the world. And this is a story of the first ever space program that just started with a bunch of dudes 
that launched rockets into space. Well, maybe at least, what is it, the, ther the thermosphere? They didn't actually go all the way to space. But these guys just launched rockets. They were not a program. They were not a military program of any kind. They were not a government program. They were not, you know, they were not funded by anybody. This is a story of Lebanon's first rocket program that was started by society. All right, here it is. Lebanon's forgotten space program. Let me get the awesome graphic up of all of them just standing next to each other. Some of my favorite ones out there. Do, 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 what, what's happening in the background? Ah, okay. So these guys, the society that never was. During the 1960s, the U.S. and the Soviet Union competed for supremacy in space. But there was another contestant in the race, the Lebanese Rocket Society. A society, basically a fancy way of saying a bunch of dudes. A science club from a university in Beirut and the subject of a recently released film. All right, my vision was to explore space. Lebanon could have done that. That was Manug Manugian. I'm, I'm, I'm hope I'm pronouncing this right. I'm trying to find the documentary, by the way, because I remember seeing a part of it at one point, and it's been lost to the ages. Nobody seem, nobody can seem to track it down, but watch it if you can, all right? Manug Manugian's boast may sound unlikely, but 50 years ago, he and a group of students found themselves as space pioneers of the Arab world. Despite a shoestring budget, they developed a rocket capable of reaching the edge of space. So just short, just shy of actually going into the, 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 the what is it, high, what, low Earth orbit, I'd say. He goes on to say, here was tiny Lebanon, able to do what the rest of the Arab world hadn't done. Manugian says, we were young kids in our early 20s, doing something incredible. So they're just kids, kids with rockets. And this feels like a story that should be actually... This should be talked about a bit more because it was a time where people just went out there and did shit. They didn't ask questions. Nobody cared. And the crazy shit that's about to happen now, you will never see happen today. This is because of the amount of clampdown, the amount of, uh, I guess, I, I want to say globalist. No, it's the, the kind of nanny state behavior we've all been a part of where things are just relegated to, you know, corporations, to governments, to entities, to people that are official. They are the only ones that are allowed to do this stuff. But really, if you just went out there and did it, not to say you should do that. I'm not advocating you going out there and launching rockets because that's illegal. Don't do that. What I'm saying is if you took a little bit of initiative, you would actually find that some people wouldn't allow you to do things if you just got some momentum going. If you had a group of hopeful dreamers that wanted to get things done. So Manugian's passion for space began, they say, as a boy in the 1940s growing up in Jericho in the West Bank. Inspired by Jules Verne's novels, he would climb the nearby Mount of Temptation and gaze at the night. At school, he carved rockets onto his desk. A maths and physics degree from the University of Texas followed. But before Manugian returned to Lebanon for a teaching post at Beirut's small college at the age of 25, in an attempt to drum up numbers, in November 1960, he renamed the science club the Hygazian College of Rocket Society. To my surprise, a number of students decided to join, he said. I had no finances, and there was little support for something like this, but I figured I could dip into my meager salary and convince my wife that I could buy what I needed for the experiments. By the way, big shout out to his wife, because honestly, this, like I said, a society of just dudes launching rockets 
And that's a lot more expensive than my miniature competition or my collection of freaking plastic little soldiers. And I can tell you the fact that she was okay with that tells you a lot about how women were really letting their men get away with doing a lot of bullshit back then. But still, she had faith in him. She believed in him. Everything for the project had to be built from scratch, he says. Prototype rockets were made from cardboard and bits of pipe and were tested on a farm in the mountains above Beirut. Just in a farm. That's it. The college came to watch one of the first launches, says Manugian. As soon as ignition took place, the rocket, which was hanging on a very primitive launcher, fell backwards and went up the mountain and landed outside a church. The guys almost blew up a mountain with a freaking church in it as well. Manugian and his team of seven students refined their designs and rocket launches grew more ambitious. Each student was assigned a different aspect of the rocket, and by April 1961, it could reach an altitude of 1,000 meters. The next rocket reached 2,000 meters. Word spread, and the Lebanese military took an interest. They offered the services of Yusuf Wahbi, a young lieutenant specialized in ballistics. We were told that we needed a safe area to launch from, says Manugian. They gave us an old artillery range. I, don't, I, I have no idea of what accent I should do. I don't want to do the cliché Lebanese one, so I'm going to just make one up from my head. They gave us all that. No, that's German. They gave old artillery range and provided with transportation to get up there. I'm going to drop the accent. Fuck it. Webby was able to source components from France and the U.S. that would otherwise have remained off-limits. He commandeered a military factory to allow the construction of complex rockets. So, this is where the start of the downfall happens. All right? They needed to grow a bit more, and they started getting the attention of certain people in positions of power, certain people from the military in Lebanon, and it was attended by some of those people. And this is where he needed access to some of the stuff, even though he thought originally that the rocket program was going to be used, you know, just for the scientific discovery of propelling rockets. He goes on to say, all our launches were attended by the public and the military. The military would always ask us how far it would go if you were to place such and such a load in the nose cone. Why? No reason. Just what, if, what if you put stuff in it? What do you want to put in it? Clorox? Yeah, I guess what? He says, my response was that this is not a military operation. It's about teaching students science. That was the mission I had. By now, the Hagazian College Rocket Society had become a source of national pride. Manugian was invited to a reception held by President Shahab to be told that the Ministry of Education would provide limited funding for 1962 and 1963. It was renamed the Lebanese Rocket Society, and the national emblem was adopted for its Cedar Rocket Program. Lebanon had joined the space race, albeit running in the slow lane. Yeah. We were launching three-stage rockets, says Manugian. Now here's the, here's the issue, right? The other space programs and the other space agencies, if you listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson and a few others, they talk about the history of the space program and NASA and everything else. They're saying that there's a lot of propaganda in the States about the fact that, uh, you know, there's these space programs didn't happen just because people were hopeful, just because people were dreamers. There's a lot of love for that initial, you know, program, the, the getting to the moon and everything else. But the reality is, is that a lot of it was funded because of military competition. The U.S. did not want to get left behind. Russia had launched the first ever space satellite. They beat everybody else out there to do it. They had Sputnik out there. And that's what triggered this uh, kind of you know technological race to see who would domineer space first because you couldn't just leave them. You can't just let them do it. 
you have to make sure that you're also being competitive. So whatever advantage they have, you don't let them claim it first. Because if they go there and they claim everything and they get the territory and they get the rights to the moon or whatever else you're doing, then you're not part of the game. You have to stay in the game. That was the military thinking at the time anyway, even if it didn't involve weapons, by the way. It was just like, hey, listen, we're going to throw money at this thing because we can't be left behind. No matter what that thing is, we don't care if it's bullshit, if it's nothing, we have to compete. That was it. That's the mentality. And that's what I'm saying. Maybe Manugin was right about not wanting to militarize his rocket program. But you need some kind of help. You need some kind of desire where, you know, somebody in power, some kind of authority figure will look at it and say, well, we should be competitive. We should stay out there. We should stay as close as possible to the competition as we can. Maybe our economy can't handle it. I feel like we can. I feel like at least as a pan-Arabic state, as far as any space agencies across the Middle East, we could compete with all the ones out there. I don't know why India is ahead of us, but it is. India is actually starting to privatize their space program. Guess what? That's never happened before. So the fact that they're doing it tells you that this is going in a new direction for everybody. So maybe we should start trying to keep up. In any case, going back to the topic at hand with the Lebanese Rocket Society, they're saying we were no longer, they were no longer toys and they could go beyond the borders of countries. We could reach the thermosphere. One time I received a call from the president's office asking us to make sure we weren't getting too close to Cyprus. Holy shit. <laughs> they're like, hey, Manuchian, Manuchian, are you, are you launching too many rockets? Yeah, like Manuchian. I'm terrible. See, this is why I don't want to do it. I have terrible accents. Don't, don't ask me to do accents. Not those anyway. So we moved slightly south, he said, which was a concern because then we were getting near Israel. So they freak out because they get too close to Cyprus. And at the time, Cyprus is pretty contested. You know, 1960s CIA operations in Cyprus, pretty intense. And now they're getting closer to the Israel border. And Israel doesn't take kindly for rockets being launched from Arab countries pretty close to them. The Cedar IV, launched in 1963, was so successful that it was commemorated on a stamp. I have the stamp for you right here, by the way, if you want to see it. That's a pretty one. So this is how proud Lebanon was at the time for their space program. You can see it, the Cedar. Cedar. And they go on to say... Unbeknownst to Minogian, the Lebanese military had other plans for his society. They had already formed a committee to decide how the rockets could be adapted to carry a weapon. Why am I not surprised? Yusuf Wahbi was acting as their man on the inside. Ah, so the plant, the man that was a part of the military-industrial complex in Lebanon, decided, you know what, I'm going to feed intelligence back to the military and let them know how the progress of the program is going. Uh, Minogian, though, was dreaming of a very different kind of payload. It was at the time the Soviets and Americans were launching animals and humans into orbit, he says. We had been training a mouse called Mickey to withstand, <laughs> to withstand high acceleration. And we thought we'd put him in the nose cone. Wow. First of all, the fact that you call him Mickey is pretty interesting. I could see that. I don't know if there's any kind of symbolism there as well with, with Zionists. This always goes back to the Zionists. But, um... Yeah, Mickey in the nose cone, training him. I don't know how you train a rat or a mouse. I'm assuming a lot of push-ups are involved. Uh, maybe they put him in like one of those, uh, what do they call them? The spinny things where you put like all the, the bottles in? Because you can't do the whole thing with the, the space program kind of training and the uh, assimilating your body towards it. 
you'd have to put him and acclimate him through something else. So he's probably swimming through pools, getting his shit together, getting on a good diet, lean, going keto, whatever it is. But mouse or no mouse, Manogian's little club was regularly front page news in Lebanon. Every lunch was accompanied by a glamorous party in Beirut. And you know how those 1960s Beirut parties were. God damn, if you think they're good now, you should have seen it then. But as Manoogian's profile grew, so did the level of unwanted attention. I think they should do that, like recreate it in a movie. Just be like, here are the nerds, you know, walking into a Lebanese club in the 1960s. I don't know what music would be playing, but still, I could see them being superstars. You know, what do you do? I launch rockets to space. Close to space, not really a full space, but still close enough. Uh, he suspected that foreign agents were monitoring his work and found that papers in his office were being disturbed overnight. Other Arab countries were keen to use his skills for their own weapons programs. He said, I was offered the moon in terms of money and support, a mansion to live in, and a lab of my own design. He says, with one particular offer made to him by an unnamed Arab country, I turned them down. I realized it's Egypt, right? It has to be Egypt. It's either Egypt or Saudi. Who would it be? Oh, well, there's, there's a few of them. Maybe Syria. Who knows? In any case, I'd say it's Egypt. That's my bet. Uh, he says one particular offer made to him by an unnamed Arab country. I turned them down. I realized what the implications would have been as I'm very strongly against violence of any kind. Except when it involves mice. Then you don't mind blowing them up in rockets. Manugian was growing concerned at what his project risked turning into. But events that took place in July 1964 whilst he was abroad, periodically he returned to the U.S. to continue his master's degree. Finally convinced he finally... What? Is this written wrong? Finally convinced him... Wait, apparently whilst he was abroad, finally convinced him that the society was now out of his control. So as he went to the States is what they're trying to say. And he came back, he realized that his society was out of his hands. Other people were in charge. Uh, I can tell that he probably lost the control slightly, slowly over time because it's a society. It's a bunch of people working together. You don't own that shit. And if the military was involved and there's other people that wanted to aspire to bigger and better things and you're getting military budgets and funding, you know, it's not like the other countries weren't doing it anyway. I could easily see that scene play out. Manugian, don't you understand? You are too much of a dreamer. We're trying to get to space. All of them are doing it. NASA are doing it. We need the money, Manogian. No, I have a dream to launch only mice to space. Peaceful mice. A good kind of mice with olive oil and hummus on the side. That's it. He says it was dangerous. Dangerous to use because my friction would trigger ignition. One of the problems was a very powerful chemical. So I, had to I told the students not to use it. There was no supervision during my absence, and when I came back, I found out that one of the students had decided to prepare a rocket using the propellant. In the ensuing fire, a student named Hampar Karaguzian lost an eye and said, what's, what's with all these freaking names? When did the Georges and, and other like Lebanese names come by? Why is all these difficult ones? What happened? It seems like, all right, fire. What is? Fair enough. Hampar Karaguzian. Karaguzian. Uh, a second student was outside the lab and went in and saved him, says Minogian, but he also got burnt. It was a major disaster. There was to be one final rocket launch for the Lebanese Rocket Society. This too almost ended in tragedy. In 1966, a rocket was launched into the Mediterranean, seemingly a safe distance from Cyprus. 
but the traje- trajectory took it straight towards a British naval vessel monitoring the launch and landed. This is the one I love the most. Is that the, the naval vessel is just watching the whole thing and they see this rocket coming at them. <laughs> it must have been amazing. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Allen. Yes, sir. How are the Lebanese faring with our rocket program? Well, sir, it seems to have launched quite successfully. Low Earth orbit. Trajectory here. Where? Here, sir. Where on the map? No, no. Sir, here. Well, actually, right there. <laughs> it just falls into the water, explodes. They say the, the vessel monitoring the launch, it was landed. It had landed just a few meters short of impacting the vessel. He goes on to say it was time to leave. Yeah, no shit. For me, it had always just been about encouraging the students, and now shit for him got real. Manoogian was warned by the friends of the U.S. Embassy. At the time, they were called cultural attaches. This is him quoting. He says they were called cultural attaches, but we knew they were CIA. That another confrontation with Israel was near, so he wanted to dip out. He didn't want to be involved in any of it. By the time of the Six-Day War in 1967, Manuagin was back in the U.S. where he stayed for the rest of his academic career. Memories of the Lebanese Rocket Society quickly faded, and archive material was lost during the country's civil war. Many of the students left to work overseas. It has only been since the release of a documentary film of the same name that interest in Manuagin's exploits has been revived or have been revived today. He is keen that history notes his small part that Lebanon played in the space race. His last quote, I believe the Rocket Society encouraged students to pursue science, and from that point of view, it was a success. Would I have liked to reach the moon? Being realistic, I could not have done any more. Lebanon didn't have the finances, but they could have pursued science and space exploration. They could have put satellites in orbit. Yes, it was a tiny country, but Lebanon could have done it. So you see there? That is the 1960s. That's a bunch of dudes. Maybe 20 of them. Started off from nothing. And in four fucking years, managed to launch rockets that came close to actually leaving the planet. Just tiny upper atmosphere. And that's tech that was really difficult to actually figure out back then. So you could do that today. Tiny country like Lebanon doesn't have the finances that we have, doesn't have the support that we have, doesn't have anything that we have. But they could have done it. And I like that he's actually honest. And this is the part that it goes back to the self-criticism I was mentioning, which is the dude can actually say, you know, I don't think we could have made it to the moon, realistically speaking. But we could have launched satellites. We could have been making that our entire industry competitively without the need for the U.S. space program, the Russian space program. That could have been ours. Sure, it could have been a part of the military, you know, industrial complex at the time. And I know the 1960s was a very different time than now. In the 1960s, the Arab mentality was very aggressive. But we don't live in that world anymore. It's not the same world. We don't think the same way. And I feel like because we know that, maybe it's time for us to be honest about what we can achieve if we just let people take risks or we back them up. Fucking back them up, man. So yeah, that is the end of the Lebanese 
Rocket Society. I wish I could find the documentary. If you guys know where I could find it, let me know. I'm interested in seeing it myself. But yeah, this uh, whole show goes out as a tribute to this uh, one rocket that still stands in Khobar. Not where I used to do, and it used to stand actually in, in Pepsi Road, the intersection of Pepsi Road and uh, and Shisma, uh, Silver Tower. It was actually close to the building that my dad had his company and his first office. It was actually my grandfather's building, not far. It was on the same crossroads. So I'd pass by this every time I'd go to school. It's a dedication to this rocket that inspired me to look at space, to freaking do sci-fi and enjoy sci-fi and, and be a part of everything that is to do with uh, miniature and sci-fi movies and everything else. It's like I, I didn't even think about it till I started researching for this show. It didn't come up. It hasn't been in my memory for years. But now that I see it, I'm like, how many fucking times did I pass by that and didn't know what it was about? Didn't know why it meant so much at the time. What kind of legacy it was a part of. A legacy that kept kind of popping up, creeping up, and then vanishing again and again and again. And now I realize that if that story had been told better, if we had a little bit more interest in some of the unknown that's happening out there, instead of blaming ourselves for our own circumstances, maybe we could have by now actually had something different. And we'd be leaders at something that we'd... Uh, Nobody would be actually able to stop, I guess. It's not late. If China can do it. We can do it, right? So, guys, that is the show for today. It's uh, about an hour 20 now into it. Let me know what you think. Do you remember the site? Are you a viewer from Saudi or you're a listener from Saudi and you remember this uh, rocket, like I said, on the intersection of Pepsi Road and the Demam Khobar Highway, right where Silver Tower was? That was the initial plot. It was... It had a waterfall behind it. Everybody would ask what it was about. That map that you're seeing, I think that still exists somewhere in Al-Khubar. And uh, it still marks the original placement of the shuttle and what it meant for people. But you can't find it in that spot anymore. Let me know what you think. Is the space program something that we, we should be actually giving more attention and more funding towards? Should we stop this mentality where we're not supposed to be, I, I guess, the country that cares about this stuff? Do we only rely on the natural resources we find? Like I said, are we going back to the Silk Road mentality of, I find shit, I sell it to you. And that's it. Or do we actually, for the first time, have to go out there and find it the hard way? Is our future just going to pop up out of the ground again? Either from once it was trees... Then it was oil. Is it going to happen a third time? There was a point in time where it was also slavery as well, but that's a different story. We don't want to talk about that. That's for another show. We're going to discuss slavery in the Middle East and how it's not necessarily as racist as the white people made it. That's for another show and another time. I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you guys for tuning in or listening or watching on YouTube. Uh, this has been the Better One Banter Podcast, episode 31. Uh, please subscribe hit the notify button if you can don't forget youtube is out to get us <laughs> they're making sure that if i fail i will not get many chances to succeed and there will be no live streaming till the i guess the middle of august please stay safe uh keep the corona chan social distances going and hopefully you guys have had a, a different time hopefully kept you engaged with something else all right you guys uh enjoy and i will be having the audio out tomorrow all right guys it's called the dosri. Bye.